Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 177, The Ilinden Uprising. No, we've got no new patrons this month, but again, if you can, please feel free to support the podcast. And even if you can't, thank you for listening. And with that, let's get into it. Well, okay, first, a quick side note. Now, uh, I uh, one listener reached out to me with a point about kind of place names and you know, basically asking why, in particular, I was using Thessaloniki instead of Solun or Salonika. So I thought I'd just quickly explain my kind of rationale there. So, The reason I've kind of defaulted to the Greek name in that case is mostly just for ease of understanding. So if someone is new to the podcast, not so familiar with the region, and I talk about Solon, they probably don't know what I'm talking about. And if they search for it in English, it might not immediately show up. Basically, it just creates some extra steps for them to be able to follow what I'm happening. And in general, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves with a lot of history podcasts is that they can be hard to follow if you're not really familiar with the material, or if you kind of zone out for a second, it can be hard to remember who was who and what was happening. So a big kind of guiding idea and principle behind this whole podcast is to make it easy as as easy as I can for you to really follow and understand. So unless it's a city like Constantinople slash Istanbul, where pretty much everyone is familiar with both names, um, I generally try to kind of default towards the name, something, either the names that my sources use or what you would generally see on a contemporary map, but just in any case to try to find a good way to make it clear. Although honestly, sometimes I just pick one without thinking about it. And then I just try to default to that to keep it consistent again, just so you can kind of follow along. So That has happened on occasion as well. Apologies for those moments, but you know, a lot of stuff always going on in my head when trying to create this narrative for you. But that's just a quick little, I guess, peek into my brain. And with that, let's get into the podcast. Now, last time we saw the death of longtime Bulgarian statesman Petko Karavelov, a split in the socialist movement between the broad and the narrow factions, and the attacks perpetuated by the boatmen of Thessaloniki. These attacks led to a harsh backlash on the local and national level, but did manage to draw a bit more European attention to the plight of Christians in Macedonia. Overall, though, they mostly just led to more bloodshed, hatred, and resentment. Afterwards, Gotsadelchev was killed in an ambush, and the MRO decided that despite the failures of the supremacist-led Gornajumaya uprising, they now had to lead their own uprising or risk destruction at the hand of the Ottomans. In addition, the king of Serbia was assassinated, bringing, you could say, a more competent and popular ruler from the Karadjordjevic dynasty back in charge there. And we basically finished up the episode on the eve of St. Elijah's Day, or Ilinden, and the beginning of that MRO-led uprising in Macedonia. So that's where we pick up today. First, I want to quickly explain the name of the uprising. It's referred to as the Ilinden Preobrzhanie uprising because the Slavic name for St. Elijah's Day and Preobrzhanie is the Slavic name for Transfiguration Day and those are kind of the two holidays that mark the opening of the uprising in Macedonia and the one in Thrace. But 
I'm just going to call it the Ilinden Uprising for short, just because Preobrazhanie is a bit of a mouthful. So yeah, uh, just to know why the names work that way. Now, the moment we left off last time, people were digging up buried caches of weapons, cutting telegraph lines, blowing up bridges, and blocking roads all around the Monastir Vilayet. Four days later, the uprising began in the Adrianople Vilayet, that second one I just mentioned, at basically nearly the opposite end of the Balkans. So these two uprisings, although they began about, you know, around a similar time, they are quite far away from each other and quite distinct. And Around the time these uprisings began, the consulates of the great powers received a declaration from the MRO explaining why the uprisings were occurring. It stated that, quote, The unpunished violence of the Muslims and the systematic persecution on the part of the Ottoman administration has driven the Christians of Macedonia and the Adrianople region to the necessity of resorting to mass armed defense, end quote. The declaration went on to express the hope that the great powers would push for reforms while also noting that the MRO would regardless continue its fight. So the MRO essentially claimed that the goal of the uprising was to force reforms to happen on the Ottoman government level. One participant explained the more direct goal of the uprising quite simply, stating, quote, We will conduct a partisan struggle combined with terrorist and anarchist measures, in other words, small military forces are to form into insurgent chetas, which will begin to act simultaneously in all places. This means we should begin the struggle en masse, concentrating on known strategic targets. In this way, we can inflict the most harm on Turkish troops easily and more quickly than they can do violence to us. The goal of the uprising is not to defeat Turkey, but only that she not defeat us. End quote. So that's more of a man-on-the-ground perspective of what this uprising is aiming rather than the more diplomatic one that was sent to the great powers. But in other words, Yemero was going to try to kind of continue the fight for as long as possible and hope that the great powers would take an interest and push for reforms in Macedonia and Adrianople. As we know, this doesn't seem like a very promising goal as most of the great powers are at this point explicitly status quo, although they did push for some reforms after the recent Gornajumaya uprising, and so, you know, maybe they'll do so again. Somehow, though, despite the brutality and the failure which had marked so many of those previous uprisings, this one appeared to have more substantial popular support. Perhaps it was because many in the Christian region, the, well, many of the Christians in the region knew that they would base the exact same reprisals whether they participated in the uprising or not. Remember, Ottoman regular soldiers, as well as well, particularly the Bashi Bazouks, the irregular soldiers, they don't tend to draw very clear distinctions between various Christian groups. For example, oftentimes you might have a you know Greek uh, patriarchate community, which has nothing to do with the kind of more Slavic exarchate-led uprising, but they'll get the exact same reprisals because just the, the Ottoman or Albanian kind of soldiers don't differentiate between them. So, you can kind of see why for a lot of Christians, it's like, well, we might as well try to do what we can to push for reforms because we're going to get the brutal reprisals no matter what. So we have an interest in this succeeding. But despite this, you know, this general sense we have that there was more popular support, we don't have precise numbers, um, though we do know about how many, we do know that many women, children, and men who didn't want to get involved at all, again, realizing that they would be punished no matter what, decided to basically just flee into the mountains. So they were understanding that 
Yes, at least their villages uh, and homes might be burned or destroyed, but if they fled into the mountains, at least they could get out of this with their lives. So imagine for a lot of the Christians in Macedonia and Adrianople, it felt like this was your option. You could either flee into the mountains and just see how long you can survive or you can fight. Uh, and of course, the you know the tragedy, the difficulty is that both of these options carry significant dangers. Now, the commander of the Ottoman soldiers stationed in the Monastir Vilayet ordered his men to burn any village which had been abandoned. So again, all those people who fled, well, their base, you know, the Ottomans already right off the bat decided that their villages deserved to be torched. Although this rule also applied to villages which only contained women and children, because obviously from the Ottoman perspective, that implies the men are off fighting, therefore implies that they deserve reprisals. However, Perry notes that villages which retained their entire populations were also occasionally put to the torch by the Ottomans. Again, showing us why so many who may have been reluctant decided to participate in the uprising anyways. Smaller uprisings also occurred in most other parts of Macedonia as well as into Kosovo. However, the most substantial uprisings began in Adrianople, again, in, and in Monastir in uh, Macedonia. In that Adrianople uprising, though, its goal was a bit to kind of draw Ottoman forces away from Macedonia, because again, they were quite far from each other. In Adrianople, insurgents managed to take a hold of an area in the Stranja region for about three weeks. And if you haven't heard of it, the Stranja region, it's a bit famous. There's a lot of novels and things about it. It's not quite mountainous. It's just a very hilly, remote kind of region. If you've seen pictures or heard of like the Rodopi Mountains, it's kind of a similar geography. And so it's yeah, it's a little remote, and so it's a pretty good place to kind of, you know, hold an insurgency. Now, there were also some small Cheddar activities which occurred in the Rodopi Mountains themselves, and some supremacists, including Sandansky and General Tsonchev, also stepped in to help in the fighting, even though this was an MRO-led uprising. Overall, though, the Ottoman forces in the area were generally caught off guard, despite all the warnings that they should be on high alert. As mentioned, MRO activity had cut many bridges, railroads, roads, and telegraph lines. And as a result, the Ottomans initially struggled to respond to these sudden attacks. This led to many Ottoman soldiers feeling demoralized as they fought off insurgent attacks, which you can imagine seemed like they'd come out of nowhere. A few days after the beginning of the uprising in Monastir, some Bulgarian socialists proclaimed the Khrushchevo Republic in the town of the same name. Here, a local council was set up with equal representation from Vlachs, Greeks, and Bulgarians, as the leaders here were supporters of a Balkan federation and actually even wanted Muslims to join them to fight Ottoman tyranny. So, again, we remember recently that the MRO had changed its name in order to kind of de-emphasize the Bulgarian ethnic nature, and so this is a kind of offset of that, and because these are more socialists, it's also a little bit more on the side of kind of internationalism and de-emphasizing religious and ethnic differences. However, the goal of an equal ethnic republic, as you can imagine, was much easier said than done. Despite changing the names to emphasize the Bulgarian roots, as we know, or to, sorry, de-emphasize the Bulgarian roots, the MRO still flew Bulgarian flags and often even referred to each other as brother Bulgarians. So there was an awkward reality that, you know, to add to this, that following the Greek loss in their recent war against the Ottomans, the Ottomans decided that Greece was not that much of a threat in Macedonia, and therefore it made sense to work closely with them 
meaning that the Greek patriarchate uh, and the people aligned with it were now highly suspect on the part of the MRO and were occasionally killed for allegedly being Ottoman spies. So again, there's this idea, this goal, right, that this movement and generally the kind of liberation movement and reform movements in Macedonia should cross ethnic and religious lines. But again, the reality that you know, local Muslims would occasionally, you know, help the Ottomans against these uh, these uprisings, and the fact that the Greeks were now largely working with the Ottomans, all that made it very difficult to kind of overcome those divisions. But regardless of infighting and uh, those issues, ten days after it was proclaimed, the Khrushchev Republic was crushed by the Ottoman army in the Battle of Sliva, in which around five to six hundred rebels failed to fight off over three thousand Ottoman soldiers. This was around the same time the Ottomans were regaining the upper hand all over. So, you know, 10 days or so into the uprising, a little longer. The insurgents may have had superior knowledge of the local terrain as well as the element of surprise, but there was simply no getting around the reality that they had fewer men, fewer weapons, fewer ammunition, fewer everything. Perry notes how, quote, with the first flash of victory, MRO bands failed to consolidate their gains. Instead, lacking real direction and trained leaders, they often suspended their military activities to celebrate their feats in newfound liberty. This gave the port the opportunity to assemble a sizable force and begin its movement towards MRO centers. End quote. So you can imagine, you know, this reality and what Perry says there definitely lends some credence to the supremacist perspective that you know, a kind of local peasant-led uprising was maybe not the best idea, and that if an uprising was to succeed, it needed more experienced military command. And yeah, you know, you could we can debate that a lot, but I, I think this insight does show you know some of the limitations of less trained Chetty and the way they fight. Now, while sporadic fighting occurred as late as November, you know, three months after the start of the very first kind of portion of the uprising. Most of the fighting as a part of the Linden Uprising was over in about a month. Now, there was some hope that the presence of Russian warships off the coast meant that the great powers were going to intervene. But unfortunately, this was basically just designed to pressure the Ottomans into finding whoever murdered a Russian diplomat in Monastir during the uprising. And there was no intention on the part of the Russians or anyone of actually intervening. Indeed, a new Macedonian immigrant group called the Supreme Immigrant Committee had sent a delegation to St. Petersburg shortly after the uprising began, but the Russians told them categorically that they would not intervene. Which, again, shouldn't surprise any of us. We've been talking about this for a while. Now, that group did manage to organize a rally in support of the uprising in Sofia, and it was attended by over 20,000 people. Again, kind of showing the extent to which there was significant popular support for the Macedonian cause. Now, I don't remember what exactly the population of Sofia was at this moment, but you know, my gut sense is 20,000 is a very large portion. It's a, that's a huge gathering for the size of the city at this moment. Still, you know, even 20,000 people on the streets of the capital was hardly enough to change the Bulgarian government's official position. In fact, on September 9th, once it was clear the revolt was beginning to lose steam, the MRO even sent an official plea to Sofia asking for intervention. That plea read in part, quote, In view of the critical and horrible situation in which the Bulgarian population, i.e. the Slavs of Macedonian, of the Bitula, i.e. Monastir, 
Villiette has fallen after the devastation and atrocities perpetuated by the Ottoman soldiers and Bashi Bazouks, and in view of the fact that the devastation and atrocities continue in a systematic manner, and because one cannot predict how far they will continue, in view of the fact further that everything Bulgarian in Macedonia is in jeopardy of perishing, the general staff regards as its duty to direct the attention of the esteemed Bulgarian government to the fatal consequences for our Bulgarian nation should it fail to fulfill its responsibilities to its brothers here in an impressive and active manner. End quote. So, you know, they're, they're pleading for help, but, well, because Bulgaria for its part knew that although it had tried to stop this uprising from happening, it was still going to take most of the blame for the uprising, a pattern we've seen a couple times. With this in mind, leaders in Sofia feared that the Ottomans actually might invade Bulgaria and warned the great powers that such an attack might be imminent. So obviously in this state, it was impossible for Bulgaria to intervene to aid the insurgents. Sofia simply could not under any circumstances risk a full-blown war between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. And so, as summer turned to fall, more and more people began to abandon the fight, burying their weapons again or fleeing into Bulgaria or occasionally into Greece or Serbia. The MRO ultimately agreed to an armistice in early November, although a few scattered Cheti continued fighting. But for all intents and purposes, the Linden uprising was now over. The simple reality was that the uprising could only have succeeded with foreign help. But because the MRO was widely seen as pro-Bulgarian, despite its attempts to rebrand, the only country which would have really considered helping was Bulgaria. But, as we just discussed, Bulgaria had been put in a geopolitical situation where such an intervention was virtually impossible, as it would mean facing the Ottomans in a war alone, something Greece had recently shown to be a terrible idea. Even worse, Greece and Serbia had both sent diplomatic communiques to Sofia, informing the government that they were siding with the Ottomans against the revolt. Now, while most previous uprisings had at least gained some European sympathy, this time was really different. European newspapers largely sided with the Ottomans, using phrases like Bulgarian bandits or Bulgarian madness to describe the events. However, there were some diplomatic victories. Great Britain, Austria-Hungary, and Russia did indeed pressure the Ottomans to enact a set of reforms. But this was decided at the same time the emperors of Russia and Austria-Hungary agreed to firmly support the status quo in the Balkans. So, you know, a gain and a loss there. But, I mean, frankly, that's about as good an outcome as they could have hoped for considering the geopolitics. Now, the Ottomans initially rejected the proposed reforms, but by late November, they reluctantly agreed. Otherwise, quite ironically, Bulgaria and the United States actually established formal diplomatic relations in the middle of the uprising, when the U.S. diplomat in charge of Greece, Romania, and Serbia was authorized to additionally represent the country in Bulgaria and presented his credentials to Prince Ferdinand. Now, don't, don't think that this was kind of connected to the uprising because obviously this had to be approved by the U.S. Senate or at least the presidency, I believe. And so this would have been in the works for several months before the uprising began. So it's just a coincidence that it happened at the exact same time. Also, interestingly enough, that means that this year is the 120th anniversary. And I know the U.S. Embassy is doing a bunch of stuff to celebrate that. So that's kind of the, the context of where this relationship did indeed begin. Otherwise, 
The other kind of diplomatic victory that came out of this moment, or at least diplomatic uh, advancement, was that a an organization called the Balkan Committee of London was, oh, no, we talked about them founding before, but they sent a support mission to Monastir to help victims of the revolt. But you know, as far as European aid, that was about it, right? They got some aid from the Balkan Committee, the great powers, some of them, you know, did push the Ottomans to enact reforms, but that's all the, the community, that's all Macedonia or Bulgaria really got from all this bloodshed. Duncan Perry summarizes the aftermath of the uprising this way, writing, quote, In the short run, the Alinden uprising gained Macedonia nothing. The MRO became fragmented and more decentralized as a result of its defeat. Many leaders were killed or arrested. The remaining luminaries split into two ideological camps and therefore were constantly at odds. Those who had supported the rebellion from its inception were pitted against those who had advocated against it. The supporters of Gotsedelchev and Prime Minister Petrov were irreconcilably opposed to those who followed Gervanov, the men they believed led the movement to its doom in the interest of promoting supremacism. Although the organization persisted until 1934 when it was outlawed in Bulgaria, the MRO never regained its former cohesion or unity of purpose. End quote. Ivan Ilchev put it even more simply, writing that, quote, the uprising remained an example of self-sacrifice in the name of a great idea. But not only did it not ameliorate the situation, it made it worse. End quote. He went on to summarize the events from the from a kind of Bulgarian perspective, noting that, quote, diplomatically isolated and unprepared for war, Bulgaria was forced to watch helplessly as thousands of Bulgarians died. The economy, which had to take a take up and find jobs for thousands of refugees was at the end of its tether, end quote. Now, I suppose it's a good moment to mention those refugees. Refugees from Macedonia coming to Bulgaria by this point is not new. We've talked about it before. And, well, it's not going to end here either. But we should all know in this day and age that providing for refugees is difficult and burdensome on an economy and society, especially when it's accompanying all the other challenges that Bulgaria as a country was facing at this time. And so when we think about the failure of this uprising and what it meant for Bulgarians and Macedonia and for Bulgaria as a country, it's just sort of adding again to all the challenges, to all the burdens that Bulgaria is facing as it tries to build itself up while simultaneously preparing to find some way to achieve its territorial ambitions. Now, the uprising also created an opening for Greece and Serbia to substantially increase their efforts to gain influence in Macedonia. The Greeks, as we know, were now collaborating more closely with local Turks to combat Bulgarian influence. And Misha Glenny writes how, quote, The Greeks behaved like vengeful bullies, executing suspected renegades and holding the patriarchate version of the mass at gunpoint, that the priest or townspeople were unwilling to perform the service. End quote. So, Again, the irony that the Elinden uprising achieved so little, but dramatically weakened Bulgarian influence in the region, both by creating openings for Greece and Serbia, as well as, as we've seen, essentially making the MRO irrelevant. I mean, dramatically, dramatically weakening that organization. But again, we did get those reforms and, well, you know, they will eventually lead to some foreign bureaucrats being stationed in Macedonia. 
Glennie quotes an Austro-Hungarian officer's horrified response to how the underpaid Ottoman gendarmes kind of turned to corruption in the territory, writing in his memoirs that the group was, quote, a privileged gang of extortionists and a rapacious public nuisance, irregularly paid, badly clothed, and indescribably poorly housed. Most married with large families, the gendarmes were to look to their own support and followed the examples set by their officers by doing so at the expense of the population, end quote. So yeah, we're, we're getting some mild reforms in Macedonia, but a lot of that isn't really making a big difference. I mean, the way the Ottomans are governing the territory is still per, kind of creating tremendous burdens for those who live there. But the reforms did mean that Christians were now actually supposed to join that gendarme force as a way to kind of curb its abuses. But the reality was that there were very few takers and the remaining Cheti still active in Macedonia murdered many who did initially agree to join. Now, they made it clear, those Cheti, that anyone who did join the Ottoman kind of gendarme or just in general kind of collaborated with the Ottomans would be treated as collaborators and then punished and As we can probably guess, the punishment for collaboration was death. So, once again, the revolutionaries were determined to prevent an improvement in the status of Slavic Christians in Macedonia under Ottoman rule, under the belief that if their status improved, this would only delay their liberation. And again, it's a tremendously, profoundly cruel irony that the only real thing that Macedonia got from this bloody uprising was those reforms However, those who instigated the uprising which gave those reforms basically opposed the reforms and stopped them from being properly implemented because doing so would, in their minds, hurt their longer-term ambitions. So again, we return to the reality that this uprising was not successful and for the most part just placed yet more burdens on the local population. However, on the other hand, the uprising and the subsequent reforms were a major blow against Sultan Abdul Hamid II. His repressive policies and vast spy network had already hurt his popularity throughout the empire, but his inability to protect the Ottoman Empire from yet more great power interference only increased opposition to his rule. So, one of the, yeah, just kind of mentioning this other effect that the Inlinden uprising did hurt the Sultan, but Well, we can say it's unclear how that will affect Bulgaria at this point. Interestingly enough, though, the Linden Uprising is also perhaps the most famous and commemorative, commemorated, rather, of all the uprisings that we've talked about on this podcast, maybe even more than the April Uprising, when you consider the fact that the Linden Uprising is commemorated in both Bulgaria and North Macedonia. Monuments including a famously odd communist one. I'll try to remember to attach a photo to the blog post, but if you just search Inlinden Uprising, I I think it's in Crucible. It's just a very bizarre, weird communist thing. I don't know how to describe it, but monuments to the uprising, communist and not, can be found throughout Bulgaria and North Macedonia. Interestingly enough, there's even a major football club in Australia named after the Inlinden Uprising, which, I mean, makes sense considering... Australia has a huge Macedonian population, but it's still, I found that kind of wild. And to add to that interesting kind of historical side note, there are actually two football clubs in North Macedonia, which are also named after the uprising. So we can all just take a moment to briefly appreciate how odd it is that this 1903 uprising against the Ottoman Empire has named three reasonably sized football clubs. History is interesting. But anyway. 
the uprising today is largely seen as having a Bulgarian character, even by many historians in North Macedonia, and this made its commemoration a bit awkward at times. For example, when Macedonia was initially conquered by Serbia, the Serbs banned commemoration of the Linden Uprising. Although later, in communist Yugoslavia, once Macedonia got its kind of own, they were trying to build a more kind of ingrained national identity, it did get a national holiday, and the Linden Uprising was then portrayed as an important event in the history of Macedonia. Unfortunately, though, today, disagreements over whether this uprising was more Bulgarian or Macedonian play one of many parts in the ongoing historical disagreements between Bulgaria and North Macedonia, which are currently holding North Macedonia back from moving towards EU ascension. Overall, though, you all know I've made my personal views more than uh, clear that the gradual and more peaceful approach taken by Stefan Stambulov in Macedonia made more sense. And this uprising is yet another example of why I believe that to be the case. If the Bulgarian government, the MRO, and the supremacists had taken that kind of gradualist approach, I think they could have been in a much better geopolitical situation at this point. But to be fair, that's a purely hypothetical, and I'm just speculating there. But, you know, that's just my two cents. Overall, though, as we've seen time and time and time again, the great powers wanted the status quo in the Balkans, and any attempt to disrupt that greatly upset them and was greatly and fervently opposed by them. Thus, the activities of the Macedonian organizations and the Bulgarian government didn't win them any friends on the international stage. Instead, these activities isolated Bulgaria and made the Macedonian cause even more disliked throughout Europe, as it was increasingly viewed as nothing but a source of trouble and annoyance. I, frankly, like, I understand why so many wanted action, but the wait-and-see approach from Stambulov held no way of knowing how long the people of Macedonia would have to wait for a change in their status. So again, I think hindsight is twenty twenty, but the incredible cost of these uprisings makes it, I can even say emotionally, difficult to cover them. But moving on from that, otherwise Bulgaria held elections in mid-October while the uprising was still ongoing. Ironically enough, the old party of Stefan Stambulov, the People's Liberals, won big. Even a newspaper which opposed them reluctantly noted that, quote, the victory in the elections surprised the winners. That's how great its scale is, end quote. That means the People's Liberals won 132 out of 189 seats. That means they had about 70% of all the seats in the National Assembly, which is all the more remarkable considering the elections held just a year earlier saw that same party win nine seats. So, I mean, to me, knowing Bulgarian politics today, it's a little less surprising, but, you know, one year difference going from nine to 132 seats is kind of wild. Now, Konstantinova notes how, quote, the transfer of power was accompanied by a considerable large-scale job hunting and self-seeking and by penetration of the bureaucratic statuses, or stratuses, rather, mayors, deputy mayors, officers, tax collectors, in the ranks of the liberal parties by the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Those were the perpetual supporters of all ruling parties, regardless of their ideas or the color of their banner. With no hesitation at all, they changed the party preference and slogans behind which they stood each year. This was the reason that for a short period of time, 1899 to 1903, the leading parties lost tens of thousands of votes in the parliamentary elections. 
The important thing was a kind of government appointed by the monarch, often after dishonorable ploys and complicated intrigues among party leaders. Ferdinand's goal from the beginning was to be truly a ruling monarch, a key man in the political life of the country. By appointing governments, the monarch indirectly dictated the results of the elections, providing the executive authority the opportunity to kind of, quote-unquote, elect the legislature, end quote. So, you know, talking about this remarkable victory on the part of Stambolov's old party, this is why, right, so many Bulgarians are willing to support any political party as long as it means they can get, you know, a job, that they can get some kind of... Um, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but um, there's an American term for this because this is a common occurrence in the United States at the exact same time. But that's why, you know, you can see these elections having such dramatic shifts, but it also is how Ferdinand, you know, as Konstantinova kind of pointed out, he can just appoint a government and then hold elections and be fairly confident that those elections will put the government he just appointed into power because all those people throughout Bulgaria will see, ah, this is who Ferdinand wants. That means they're most likely to win. Therefore, I should support them because they're the ones that are going to get me some kind of a job, some kind of a contract, some kind of a kickback, some kind of something. And remember that although the national liberals had won an enormous victory in the election, interesting enough, though, the prime minister was now not their leader, Dmitry Petkov, but actually was still General Racho Petrov, Ferdinand's close ally. So Ferdinand was in such a strong position that even though he could basically dictate which party would win, he could then subsequently tell them, no, 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 your party leader is not going to be prime minister. My guy is going to be prime minister. So it's an interesting little kind of peek into how, how Bulgarian democracy is functioning or not functioning as it is and how Ferdinand is managing to kind of follow the letter of the law, follow the constitution, but still exert so much control. And we talked about this before, the irony, right? That, you know, the old uh, Prince Alexander, that he wanted this kind of control, but he felt that he needed to change the constitution to get it. Whereas Ferdinand realized very quickly, no, 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 that's not necessary. I can exert this much control without changing the constitution. So there we go. We now have a new national assembly, which is convening and facing a host of challenges. Bulgaria is diplomatically isolated, flooded with refugees, threatened on the brink of war with the Ottomans, and in a profoundly difficult economic position. Next time, we'll see just how this new government intends to respond to all of these challenges. And we'll also see the entire world order suddenly upended by a conflict many thousands of kilometers from Bulgaria's borders. All that is to say, you won't want to miss it. This episode was produced and written by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven, as always, check out the podcast website, bghistorypodcast.com, for all kinds of extra information about this and every episode, and I'll catch you in the next one.